Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see we have uh, some old friends here, uh, Kim and Terry Chung. Terry used to serve as one of the elders at our church, and so it's wonderful to have him and his wife back in the house with us. It's always cool to see the faces and the lives that help build our church when they return for a visit. And I hope it's cool for you to see what God has done here since the time you've been gone. I love member induction because it reminds me that even while God is at work as a whole church organizationally, he's also very much at work in individual lives writing a story. And for us as a church, we gained a new family as part of our strength, our, our body, but for that family, this is a significant day in the story God's writing in their lives. And so I, I love that dual layer of story, which I think is such a, a cool part of walking with Christ. This morning, I'm going to um, plug ahead on our series in the book of Psalms. If you're a U2 fan, this is probably your favorite psalm. Uh, I know this is one of Bono's favorites. In fact, throughout the 80s, they ended every one of their concerts with this song. I don't know if you know the story about the song 40, but U2 was... In the studio, they had limited time. They had about uh, less than an hour to get out of the studio, and they needed one last track laid down for this album. And so Bono opened his Bible, and in 40 minutes, they wrote, performed, recorded, and, and printed this record. I mean, this is it. This is a, a less than an hour exercise, a movement of God in their lives as they opened up Psalm 40 and realized that there was a song there for them. So for Bono, anyway... When you read the words, he gave me a new song. He gave him a new song and millions of dollars, too, along with that new song. It's kind of cool. The title of the message is He Lifted Me. And I mentioned before that I'm going to try to draw the title directly from the words of each psalm that I preach off of. But it may also as well be titled, Waiting is Hard. I don't think anyone I've ever met enjoys waiting. Maybe some of you do. Raise your hand if you love waiting for things. Yeah, I don't think anyone likes waiting. That's why it's interesting that one of the signs, the evidences that the Holy Spirit lives in us is patience. Because patience is not human, it is divine. I don't believe patience is an inherent trait of human beings. I believe it is a quality of God which expresses itself in our lives the more strongly God lives in us. We hate waiting so much that even when we're waiting for a really good thing to happen, waiting sucks, doesn't it? There's a guy named Richard Lawson who's an MIT professor, and I didn't know this was possible, but he's made an entire career out of studying waiting. And waiting specifically in line and in traffic. He studied the psychology, the physics, the physicality, the logistics of waiting for things when you can't move, when there's no choice. And one of the things he's found is that on average, he estimates Americans will spend between one to two full years of their lives waiting in line or in traffic. If you fly a lot and you go through the TSA security, you know that that's probably underestimating. You know, two years is 17,520 hours. That's a lot of time spent 
just sitting. There's this, uh, there's this picture that I think will evoke strong negative feelings when you look at that. Do you know that the idea of next steps, do you remember how for 25 years our vision has been to be a church of next steps? That vision was born while I was stuck in traffic on the Eisenhower going to work at Loyola. When I was starting the church, remember, we, I, I was full-time at uh, Loyola and bivocationally pastoring the church. And as I sat in the traffic, the thought kept recurring to me, traffic roads are not supposed to be parking lots. We're supposed to keep moving, but we stand still. And it's so frustrating when you're supposed to move and there's no movement. And then there was this eureka moment where God said, that's how Christian life is supposed to be. There are times when it's slower or faster, but you're never supposed to just sit where you are. There's always supposed to be at least some movement. And as long as there's even incremental movement, you can live with it. And when I'm in, in, in bumper-to-bumper traffic, I don't need to go 50 miles an hour. But even if I could just let go of the brake and move five feet, I'm like, yes, yes, finally. And so that's where this is born out of. It was the frustration and the brokenness of seeing that waiting is not how we're supposed to spend our lives. We're supposed to stay moving. Well, if we, we have such a hard time waiting, even for good things, that the Disney theme parks spend millions of dollars beautifying and making their waiting areas as pleasant, comfortable, and entertaining as possible. I don't know if you, you know, if you go to Great America, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I, I really dislike Great America. I have a very deep personal distaste for that place. But Disney, I love. Disney is worth the money because Disney knows where to put that money. And they think about you in everything. They also think about themselves. They make a lot of money, but they think about you. And even the waiting is not so bad. But if we have this much trouble waiting for good things to begin, I guarantee you it is much, much, much harder waiting for bad things to end. Would you agree? That's the two kinds of waiting we have to do, and we can't escape it in this life. If you're alive and you don't live on an island, even if you live on a deserted island, you're going to wait, right? And you will do two kinds of significant waiting in life. You will wait for good things to happen, and you will wait for bad things to end. Neither one of those is easy, but I would suggest to you that waiting for hard things to be done is so much harder because at least the waiting for good things to begin is just passive. But waiting for bad things to end is painful every second of the wait. And some of you know exactly what we're talking about here. The, the first verse of the psalm is really an introductory note to the praise leader, the worship leader in the congregation. And it says simply, this is one of the psalms David wrote. That's it. It's just an attribution of authorship But it doesn't tell us, unlike some of the other Psalms of David, what was happening in David's life. And the truth is, we really don't have a good guess based on the context of this this chapter. But it's almost better that we don't know exactly what was going on. Because sometimes I read about what was happening in David's life, and I try to relate to a king of an ancient country, and I'm like, I don't think that situation's ever going to happen to me. I don't think my son is going to rise up and try to kill me so he could become the senior pastor of Harvest Community Church. I don't think Noah would ever do that to me. But, you know, I can't relate to the particulars of David's story, but I can relate to what he describes as how it felt to be where he is. And maybe you can't relate to every situation 
that you come across, but you can definitely relate to the words he uses in the psalm to describe what it was like to be stuck where he was. So I'm almost happier that no details are available because you don't have to get caught up in the details. You can just hear his words and go, I have been there. I haven't been in exactly where David's been, but I've been exactly in that state of heart, and I could relate to this. David begins the psalm with a recollection, a memory. He remembers a past time when he was in great distress and God delivered him. And he's remembering this because he's in that place again. And can we just tell the truth? Even if you have one really bad chapter in your life, it won't be the last one, will it? I mean, if you love anyone in this world, then the love for that person will lead to days where there'll be loss, pain, separation, hurt. It's inevitable. If you have a physical body, that body won't work perfectly for the rest of your life. To be alive is to endure hard things over and over again. And each time I finish one bad thing, I almost want to say, phew, we survived it. Now it's clear sailing. And it might be for like a day, a week, a month, a year, but trouble will revisit us. And I don't say that to depress you. I say it to set right expectation. Life was never supposed to be trouble-free for us. That's not the promise of God entering our lives. It's once you know me, you'll have clear sailing. No, he says, once you know me, you will never pass through anything alone and powerless. That's the promise of God. And so he begins this lament, this, this psalm, a song of prayer to God by remembering something that already happened in his life. And he says, I waited patiently for the Lord once. I waited for him to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. Now, sometimes studying the original languages is helpful because I, I looked into this, this phrase, waited patiently, and I was a little surprised to find the same word repeated twice, but in slightly different forms. Um, it's the way a junior high school girl might repeat a word to add meaning, right? I've said this before. Like, there's a difference when a girl goes, do you like him or do you like like him? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know there's a difference between liking someone and like-liking? If you're that boy, you want her to like-like you. You don't want her to just like you. Stay in the friend zone. So that's the idea. When you repeat the word, it intensifies the word. It adds not just a nuance, but it changes the whole meaning to something else. And really what the Hebrew says is, I waited, waited for the Lord. I waited, waited. And already you can hear it, right? The force of it. I didn't just wait. I waited, waited for the Lord. It's the repetition of the same word back to back that adds force. What David's saying is that wait was not an easy one. I I wait for everything every day, but that wait is significant. It's one of my anchoring memories. If you remember the movie Inside Out, it would have been a special colored ball in that that system because each memory, each thought is a little, little marble. This one would have been the memorable one, a gold, silver one, something that stands out. Have you ever read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, The Message? So The Message is not the best Bible in the world to do serious study of the Bible. But in your devotion life, if you want to emotionally, relationally connect to God, it is a tremendously helpful rendering of the Bible. Because he writes it struggling to put the Bible into plain English in ways that do justice to the original Hebrew and Greek but make it 
easier to feel what the Bible is trying to make you feel. And I especially love the way Eugene Peterson translated Psalm 40, verse 1. Listen to how he wrote it. I waited and waited and waited for God. At last he looked. Finally, he listened. Do you feel that? Does that describe the way you feel right now? Maybe at least the first half of that. Maybe this morning, hearing this message, you can't even look at the second half of that because you're stuck in the first. I am right here, waiting and waiting and waiting. And as I wait, I watch everyone else get what I'm waiting for, and I'm still waiting and waiting and waiting. And David's describing a wait that felt like it would never end. I don't think I'm ever going to stop waiting. I don't think it's ever going to be over. But gloriously, because he's looking back, he can say, and I thought that way, I felt that way, but a day came where finally, at last, he looked and he listened. When people have waited a long time to get married, I really appreciate when they play the Etta James song at last at their wedding. So meaningful. It's a wonderful phrase, at last. It's a way of saying, this was a story I didn't think would ever end, but God brought it to a close, at last. There was a last word to this chapter of suffering, and God wrote it beautifully. It's important for David to remember this past deliverance because he finds himself right back in that place of waiting and waiting and waiting and wondering if it's ever going to end. Isn't it funny how you could be in the exact same place and you still feel like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And, And God's sort of like, hey, remember last time? Why, Why are we like Drew Barrymore on 50 First Dates? Every single time is like the first time, over and over and over again. Now, you may not be able to relate to whatever King David was going through, but can you relate to the way he describes his trouble? He says, I was in the pit of despair, stuck in the mud and the mire. Some of the translations call the pit of despair the pit of destruction or the slimy pit. The mud and the mire is sometimes just called the miry bog or the muck. Have you ever stepped in that kind of mud? Back in 2007, about 12 years ago, a team of us went, 13 years ago now, wow. We went to Kenya, and I took my son Noah and a couple other people, and we walked up to a, a peak called Kib Kanur outside of Kapsuar, Kenya, about maybe 10,500 feet above sea level. And halfway up there, it started pouring rain, and then there's, there was this area of mud. I have never been in mud like this before. I had tucked my jeans deep into my, my wool socks. I had my boots on, tied firmly, and I stepped into this mud, and I sank down to my knee. I, it's like, it was like some kind of cartoon or something. There's no way that just happened. I'm like this. Like, like literally one leg is up here on the ground. One's, and so I finally wrenched my leg free, and I was barefoot, y'all. I mean, that's crazy, right? Tightly tied boots, socks. And I came up with just my bare, muddy feet. And I was like, 
I lost it. So I digging in the mud and I finally pulled my socks and my boots back out. That kind of mud will mark your memory. And when I read this passage, it, ever since that day, I can experientially identify with the feelings David is. He's saying, I was stuck in this place and there was no footing. Whatever I tried got me more and more stuck. Have you ever been in that place? This picture of a deep place, a pit, where there's mud at the bottom, would actually awaken for us, not for David, it it hadn't come yet, but for us, it would awaken images of a prophet named Jeremiah, who once spoke a very unpopular truth, and the people did not like what he was saying, and they decided, this guy's causing us all kinds of trouble, let's kill him. And so they threw him into a pit. It says, it says that they, the officials took Jeremiah from his cell and lowered him by ropes into an empty cistern. That's a deep well that belonged to Malchijah, a member of the royal family. There was no water in the cistern, but there was a thick layer of mud at the bottom, and Jeremiah sank down into it. There are some powerful visual images evoked by that. And some of you don't need an illustration to identify with this. You've been stuck in that place. Maybe you're still stuck there. It's like looking up at a disappearing point of light that represents the world you once knew, the freedom, the normalcy, the stability, the joy that once was a part of your life but seems so impossibly far away now. And you're stuck in this mud and every time, like at some point you stop struggling and you start slowly sinking. So you struggle again. And as you move, there's no place to put your foot and the movement causes you to get even more stuck. Have you ever been in that situation where doing nothing makes you sink? Trying to do something makes you sink? And you're like, what do I have to do here? I try to do something, it makes the situation worse. I do nothing, it makes the situation worse. And every second... The light at the top of the well gets smaller and smaller as you sink lower and lower. And it takes a toll on you, doesn't it, to be stuck in a pit like that. I've met kids when I was a youth pastor who described their home life as a living hell. And they were in high school. I was their youth pastor, and they said, Pastor Dave, I have a calendar where I, I mark down the dates so I get to leave home. Can't wait Some of them weren't even headed for college. They're like, as soon as I graduate high school, if I have to pack everything in a knapsack and walk out the door, I'm going. I can't wait to be done with this. And if you've ever been stuck in that place, it seems like help will never come. And yet I take such comfort, and you can too, from David's testimony. He was in exactly that kind of situation. He said, it was miraculous. At the end of it, God did lift me. Sometimes he lifts you in this lifetime. Other times he he chooses to lift a person back home to him. But one way or the other, the deliverance of God will come. And he says, he lifted me. And he set my feet on solid ground. And he steadied me as I walked along. You can feel the relief, the emotional joy of David as this thing he thought he would never escape is finally behind him. 
just a little bit. David waited and waited and waited, and his waiting was justified as God rescued him. But you might struggle to hear this because you're thinking, and I I thought this too, why is David's waiting for God so heroic? Why is it a big deal? What else could he do? When you're stuck in a pit, you can't be like, oh, yeah, I waited. Duh. Like when I'm in security at TSA at the airport, I'm like, yeah, I, I waited so patiently. What were the alternatives? What was my option number two? There, there is none. I'm stuck, which is why I waited. But listen, wanting something to be over is not the same as waiting for the Lord. And that's the key to what David is testifying. There's a way to just endure a thing until it's over, numb yourself, harden your heart, just pretend you feel nothing and just go, eventually all this will be over. And there's a way to protect yourself, but that's not the same thing as waiting for the Lord. This is so important a distinction for us to make. It's one thing to just go, eventually this too shall pass and I'll numb myself until it's over. It's the adult equivalent of this. Do you ever do that when someone was yelling at you? Plug your ears and I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And that would somehow protect you from the noise they were making. We do that all the time. This stinks. So I will just feel nothing until I feel good again. And that is a valid option. It's one choice many, many people make to get themselves through hard things. But what I notice about David, as you read all of the Psalms, it's clear that David passed through seasons of horrible despair. What we might diagnose today as depression. Without a doubt, all the symptomology of serious, deep depression is exhibited in some of the deepest words David writes. He didn't have some of the modern means available to help him, and I think he would have been greatly helped if he had. But there's one thing I see consistently in David, which I think all of us, regardless of the depth of our despair, can learn from, is that God still remained a permanent fixture in David's world. That didn't mean he always felt God's nearness. It didn't mean it was easy for him to hang on. But there was a place he just cried out, even in desperation when he felt nothing. He cried out in one direction consistently, God, help me. And later in this same psalm, David reveals there really is another alternative to waiting for the Lord. He says, there are those who trust the Lord, and they are contrasted to those who put their confidence in the proud or those who worship idols. In other words, in the times when we find ourselves stuck in a bad place, there will be no shortage of voices speaking into your life. Have you noticed that? People talk the most to you when you least want to hear people talking to you. Can we say amen to that? Like, I, please stop calling me. I don't need your advice, but they'll offer it. And so much of the advice, and I'm sorry if I've been one of those, you're probably like, that's you, Pastor Dave. You, you talk to me when I don't want to. Granted, I apologize. I do. But I'm not the only one, and God's people are not the only ones talking to you giving you good advice. 
I've watched people go through marital trouble and well-meaning coworkers go, you don't have to put up with that. Dump that fool. Walk away. As if just relieving the pain will be everything. They don't realize that that marriage still means something to that person. They're looking for hope, not just an exit. But that when that's all we have, is the avoidance of pain, that's the best advice we'll give. So it's not like those people are evil. They are just in a posture, a worldview, where they've rejected God and they mock anyone who'd be stupid enough to endure unnecessary pain if they could do something about it. So the proud and those who worship idols, the voice that will speak to you in the midst of that pit will always be something like this. What are you waiting for? That help is not going to come. You're stupid to wait for an invisible God. They will mock your patience. They will mock your faith. They will mock your waiting. And the advice they will give you, the encouragement they'll push you to do is take control of the situation. Just do something, anything, to make this finish faster. If you've got to burn bridges, burn them. If you've got to say the hurtful things, say it. But just move on. Get this thing over. Don't take the long, righteous path. Don't wait for God, just end it now. And I don't suggest that everyone who says stuff like that is evil and, and, poor, and has, has bad intentions. Sometimes they're giving you the best they know how. And so David says, oh, the joy of those who in that place can resist the temptation, the tremendous temptation to get out of that trouble in ways that don't include the deliverance of God. Anyone who's been in serious pain knows how powerful that desire is to just end the pain, whatever the cost. He says there is a joy that comes from waiting for God and watching him show up. I was thinking as I wrote this message about that movie Castaway. How many of you guys remember it? It was like 100 years ago, so if I give away the ending, don't get mad. <laughs> Go to the movies once in a while. I bet you no one in this room remembers a single character's name from that movie except Wilson. Is that right? Does anyone remember Tom, uh, Tom Hanks' character's name? It's Chuck Noland. Okay? He's a FedEx guy. He finds himself marooned on an island. He had just given a ring to his longtime girlfriend, and they were looking forward to getting married when his plane crashes and he's marooned on an island. And it's the memory of her, the thought of her, that holds him steady and keeps him going until he gets off the island. It's a crazy journey of surviving what is unsurvivable. And by all means, he makes it back. And the climactic ending is he finds Kelly's home. And he's holding this little FedEx package and... These symbols of things that symbolized her, reminded him of hope, kept him going. And you're waiting for this perfect Hollywood ending where she goes, you're alive. And, you know, the hug. But instead, he sees her and she has clearly moved on. And who can blame her? She waited a very long time. But when a person doesn't come back from a plane crash in the middle of the ocean, at some point you go, maybe... He's gone. And so she moved on with her life. And the truth is, I cannot hold that against her. I cannot blame her for that. I would be an, 
I would be a horrible human being if I looked down my nose and said, why? I did, I did say that in the movie because I emotionally felt disappointed. Right? I was like, why didn't she wait? But if I were her, I would have moved on long before she did. I'd be like, hey, people don't survive that. Time to move on. I just kept thinking, though, despite how understandable her not waiting was, how different that ending of that movie would have been if she had waited. That this impossible miracle actually happened. But the joy of that miracle was dampened because at some point, very understandably, she just stopped waiting. I wonder how many times we have short-circuited the joy of experiencing God's final deliverance because the waiting grew too much. And I'm not looking down my nose at anybody who found it hard to wait. And some of your pain and the things you're waiting through, I will never experience in my life. I can't speak to it. I can't tell you, oh, you should just fight through it. That is not at all what I'm saying. But I'm pointing you to a powerful remembrance of a real person who knew God who said, I didn't think this was going to end. And the thing I thought was impossible actually happened. And oh, the joy of that day of deliverance for those who did not stop waiting actively for the Lord. To wait for the Lord is simply to say, There is no other way forward. Either he will rescue me or there is no rescue. The answer I can make for myself is no real answer in the end. It might bring an end to the pain, but it will not bring joy into my life. David said that when the deliverance of God came, it also came with a soundtrack. Aren't you so glad for soundtracks? Don't you love movies? Picture what movies would be like if there was no music, especially at the crescendo, those climactic scenes where the army finally crests the hill and everyone waiting on the city walls goes, they're here! And there's just silence. It's just clip, clip, clap, clip, clip, clap, clap, clap. It'd be so boring, wouldn't it? You want to hear all this orchestral music crescendo and it's supposed to be like that. The great moments of life have a soundtrack. It's one of the gifts of music is it makes our hearts rise with our situation. We feel what we're going through. What David says is when God delivered me, he gave me a new song to sing. What that means is that there was a song he was singing and God replaced that old song with a new song. That got me to thinking, what, what, the, what are the songs we sing when we're at the bottom of the well? What are the songs you sing when you're in that place of interminable, painful waiting and rescue hasn't come and you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I can go another day. I don't know if I can make it. This is too much. I'm so tired of this. I want this just to be over. I'm done with it. I'm over it. And so we have these songs we sing, and we sing them by memory because we've repeated them so many times. I've sung those songs. There was this hilarious song that uh, we found one of our kids singing about their siblings, break your face, hurt your neck, you know. They were just 
fantasizing about the damage they would do to the other because they couldn't actually do it. So they were comforting themselves by singing a song of vengeance. And though I should have been disappointed as a parent, it was hilarious to me. I was, it turned it into an anthem of vengeful hatred. <laughs> I know that's horrible that I laugh, but it tickles me because it reminds me that in our painful places, we still sing. The songs are not pleasant songs, but we sing, and we sing them to ourselves, and we sing them to God, and we will sing them to anyone who will sit at a Starbucks and listen to us. We sing them long past the point where our closest friends and family cannot bear to hear them anymore. Do you remember Mbop? How you wanted to <laughs> do something bad to yourself when it came back on the radio, right? I mean, I used to catch a song for the first hundred times. But at some point, you're like, I don't want to hear that song anymore. And even then, they just kept playing it. And that's the nature of pain. We will sing because the song is rising. I'm not trying to annoy you. I'm not trying to be a, a negative Nancy, a downer. But I'm saying to you, this is what I'm feeling, and I can't hold it in. It spills out of me. And we sing these songs, and they are honest songs, true songs, heartfelt songs, but they are songs of doubt, despair, bitterness, envy, sadness, accusation. There are, there are songs that, that shine a light on our pain and our hopelessness and how hard it is to stay where we are. I don't think God holds those songs against us. But what he does is if we will wait for him, he will give us a new song to sing. And one day you'll say, I never thought I'd have a life again. But today I can honestly say, I've turned a corner because God was faithful. And I actually had my first thought about the future today. I actually made my first plan for a month out today. Because I expected that I would still be here. And that was amazing to me. And the rest of us are going, oh, we do that all the time. But for me, you don't know what that represents. That I actually thought about next year. And that's a song God has put in my heart. He literally puts that song in our mouth. Can I end with this? When God puts that song in your mouth, he doesn't want you to sing it in your head. He puts that song in our mouth with the intent that when he does this great thing in our lives and the impossible happens and the waiting is over and he shows up, he wants us to sing that out loud. And it's not a boast about us, but it's a boast about him. That for us, what felt impossible, God has done it. David says, he put that new song in my heart. And as I sing it, what a wonderful thing to say. Many will see what he has done and they will be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Because they'll see that my trust in the Lord was vindicated in the end. You know, there's so many times where when we're in the pit, I can't find hope in my own story. 
I can't dig deep down or read my old journals and, and somehow find that inspiration. I did love God yesterday. I did have hope yesterday. Today, I can't find it anywhere in my house. I'm looking, 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 and it's not there. But then a brother or a sister tells their story. And I suddenly begin to think, if they found hope and light at the end of their tunnel, is it possible that I'll find mine? I know it's not enough comfort to pull you completely out. But what David says and what God promises is that through our testimony, the lives of others will also begin to be lifted up. I find that we sing the songs from the pit more readily than we sing the new song that God gives us. We will tell the story of our pain a thousand times, but when we're asked to share the story of the deliverance, I don't do public speaking. I don't open up in front of others, and I understand how hard that is. But know this, God is greatly honored every time you take that step of faith and you sing the new song he gives you out loud. That new song you sing isn't just for you. It's for the ears of others who are still at the bottom of the well and need to hear that music fall over the edge down into the pit. I have longed for our church to have a greater culture of testimony because there are some tremendous stories being written in our church. There are things happening in this congregation that you would call miraculous if you heard them. If you heard them. And what I love about our women's ministry is more and more and more each quarter, women are taking that risk and crossing that threshold and they're telling their story and they're telling it at a depth of honesty and vulnerability that is staggering. Men, you wouldn't believe your ears if we allowed you to go. I haven't heard it directly, but I've heard the effect it's had on the women of our church. And I don't think it's just theory. Testimony lifts others up. Our new song is for the ears of those who are still struggling. If God has given you a new song to sing, Ever in your life and someone invites you to sing it I charge you in the name of Jesus to sing that song to sing it as loudly as you can because this world is flooded with the amplified songs of despair and pain but God is every day putting new songs into the mouths of people let's blast that music too We'll all find ourselves in the pit of despair more than once in this journey of life. When you find yourself there, or if you're there now, hope and strength come to us from two really important places. From remembering that we were there before and we got out because of God. So remembrance is a very important thing. God uses to give us hope. We also get that hope from the songs of others whose mouths God has put a new song 
to replace the old one. I find it difficult to preach through the Psalms because you can't really preach the Psalms without going first to the places that are the hardest for us to be in and talk about. I also find it hard because I have to address trials which I myself have never experienced. And I know that some of the pain you're in, no other person in this room can understand. I acknowledge that 100%. I want you to know that there is one who does understand. And thank God he's the only one that we can put our trust in and not be ashamed in the end. Why don't we bow together and let's just let the Lord continue talking to us. And if you have something you need to say, I want to invite you to say it to him. If you have been in a place at the bottom of the well, feet stuck in the mud, chances are that this room is a painful place for you to be in because it's probably filled with people who have let you down, disappointed you, haven't stayed the course with you. People who moved on even when nothing changed for you. And I know that's added to your pain. And there's no way to justify or defend. I know this though. I've never met a person who deserved my full confidence except the person of Jesus Christ. You're in a room full of people who are limited and fallible and have let you down. But you're also in a room with a God who will never, ever leave you alone in the pit. As we wrap up, fix your eyes on that God. Not on the mud beneath your feet. Or the people sitting around you. But on the God who, if you wait for him, one way or the other will lift you out of that pit. He'll put a new song in your mouth. As we were singing that last song, I was really gripped with this uh, very strong impression that in the aftermath of that message, there is a lot of spiritual um, fighting going on in this room right now. So I want to name it and I want to pray against it and pray for us as a church as we close. I'm not going to do the usual benediction, but I want you to join me in a prayer because I really believe God is fighting for us, but his enemy is also fighting. So let's pray right now. God, we just begin by claiming you as king and acknowledging that there is no power greater than the power of our God. You are powerful even when we can't see your power. You are more powerful than the lying voice of the enemy. 
And he so badly wants to defeat us. He delights in our destruction. And you love to rescue. So come now in this moment, Holy Spirit, and be our shield and our protection. Silence the voice of your enemy and shout and whisper your loving, life-giving voice to us. Lord, we pray for those brothers and sisters whom we love who have heard these words and are powerless to respond. They don't stand in a place of disagreement, but of inability. And we pray, Lord God, for them, you would claim your promise that when we are weak, you are strong and powerful for us. You call us not only to obedience, but to trust, to surrender. And so for those who cannot step out and walk forward, we simply pray you will lift them out. And do it now, Lord God. Be loving and tender and merciful and kind to those who have stayed in the pit so long. Let them feel the warmth and the light of your love and approval and acceptance of them right now. Let them feel it. And carry us for one more day. Help us to hang on to you. We love you, Lord. You are worth waiting for. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly to our rescue. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.